Thank you. It's great to be at Mercy House this morning. Uh, I'm Greg Moselle, one of the pastors uh, up at First Baptist Church. About three years ago, I was on sabbatical, and Robert preached at, at First Baptist, and so a few months ago, Robert contacted me and asked if I would speak, and I'm delighted to. I think this is a beautiful witness of how our two mission outposts are really working together, partnering together uh, to labor for the kingdom of God. Amen? That uh, we're all re- really part of the big C church. It's just that, that we all do that in different communities with our unique missions calling out. Now, I've known Robert for almost 20 years. Uh, many Fridays, he and I meet and we share fr- from our hearts. Uh, Robert has spoken into my life many times. Sometimes that's been encouragement when I've really felt wounded, and other times it's been wounds from a friend where Robert saw something in my life and he spoke into my life. And that's what God's Spirit so wanted me to see. Then often I go home to Carol and say, you know, Robert really spoke into my life. She'll be like, man, I, I've been telling you that for two years. And it took Robert to get that, right? Uh, but that's what community is really all about. And so I want to tell you briefly what your pastor is really like when you're not around and he can say whatever he wants. What you see here is who Robert really is. He loves you. He labors in prayer for you. He studies Scripture with his whole heart engaged uh, to strive for you to be able to preach the gospel to yourself all through the week. And so, you are so blessed to have Robert and Melanie pouring their lives into you, and you are such a blessing to them. Father, speak to us. Drill down deep. In the places where we're wounded, would you bring healing? Where we are wandering astray from you, would you convict us, knowing that your conviction is never to condemn us? but it's always to draw us back home to your loving heart. Father, where we might be in spiritual neutral, God, would you drill down deep and by your Spirit motivate us to take the next step of trusting you, God. Speak to us, shape us, mold us, craft us more like Christ, we pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. What will we do with the one and only life that God gives to us? Because this isn't a dress rehearsal, this is life. And we'll leave behind a footprint that will have impact for generations to come. And how we choose to invest the one and only life that God has given to us will have huge impact in eternity. And we can either view the one and only life that God has given to us uh, through the lens of our culture. Our culture views life as a commodity that we can spend however makes us happy, however gives us a sense of meaning, However, uh, somehow appeases a little bit of guilt where we do a few things to help a little bit, and then we feel good about ourselves. But when we move from ownership to stewardship of the one and only life that God has given to us, then I think that's when we really begin to live. We begin to thrive. We begin to find joy and peace and hope, even in the midst of the challenges of life. Just imagine that move from ownership to stewardship. Just imagine the impact on dates on Friday nights. If, if that guy or girl looks, looks at that man or woman, not like as a commodity, like, okay, this is a date, I can do whatever I want, but instead stewardship. Wow, this is a brother. This is, this is one of God's precious children. How do I steward that? Wouldn't that transform a lot of the wounds and aches and hurts? Imagine with our children, if we viewed the children 
who are growing up in our homes, instead of saying, well, these are our children, so we'll kind of do whatever, but instead we recognize, God, thank you for loaning these children to us. These are your children that you've stewarded to us for a season of time. Imagine with our resources, our finances, if instead of saying, I own this, or okay, I'll give 10% or 3% or 1.5% or whatever to God's work, and then I'll do whatever I want with the rest. That's nowhere in Scripture, okay? Instead, if I look at all that I have and I ask God, I don't really own this. You've entrusted these things to me. You've given me the ability to earn this stuff. God, how can I steward this? Imagine the difference in a world filled with need. Imagine the differences even in our own community because this is really the tale of two Amhersts. There's the Amherst that likes to think of itself as intellectual and enlightened and progressive. And then there's the other Amherst, the majority Amherst. And that's the Amherst where there's people who are in financial crisis. They wonder if they're going to be able to put diapers on their babies, how to pay their rent, how to turn on heat in the winter, their food insecure. We, we've been meeting with the chancellor of outreach and kind of the uh, design team at UMass because we're in a master planning process and looking at maybe partnering with UMass to either build across the street or for them to build something over our parking lot, basically to generate income for us to expand our building. And it's fascinating because the chancellor of outreach, John Kennedy, said, you know, one of the, he thanked us for the food pantry at First Baptist, and he said this, you know, one of the greatest needs that we're concerned about with UMass students is food insecurity. In other words, there's more and more UMass students who are showing up to classes hungry. So this is something that's not just out there. It's right here in our own community or, or families, children growing up in dysfunctional homes and experience domestic violence, and they've never seen anything different. So then when they act out what they've experienced, what do we do? We mass incarcerate them. Or people who struggle with mental health. Did you know that 56% of people in U.S. prisons have some form of mental health? In other words, we so often as a culture, we don't address uh, a lot of crime as either mental illness or addictions. We address it legally and we throw people in prison and that way they're out of sight and out of mind. People who languish with depression who are lonely and have never experienced love before, people in our own community who are in the midst of spiritual confusion, who've who've never experienced God's love before, who, who don't know anything about the grace that Jesus purchased on the cross that can set us free. All these issues are so real to me because I grew up in, in a home where there was quite a bit of anger. I grew up with learning disabilities. Uh, I graduated from high school with like a 2.2 GPA. My mom cried when I graduated high school because she didn't think I would make it. I forgot to tell the search committee at First Baptist that 20 years ago. But, uh, but through God's grace, there's been transformation that's happened. What will we do with our one and only life? When people in our own community, will we see them? Will God move us toward them as the hands, the feet, the voice of Jesus? So let's move to James chapter 5 and a really challenging verse, a really challenging passage of Scripture and see how James speaks to a people who were struggling with a lot of the same things we are. Uh, These were Christ followers, the first generation after Jesus, and they're striving to live out 
their faith in the midst of the Roman Empire. A lot like we live in the empire, don't we? We live in an empire that has a narrative of power and glory and exceptionalism, right? And so because of that, we can get so caught up in that narrative that we can so often miss the rest of our culture. And we can miss people with needs. So join me in James chapter 5. Let's begin in verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Isn't it fascinating that James chapter 5 begins with, now listen. There aren't a lot of places where authors of Scripture kind of call a, a, a time out and say, now hold on, don't just keep, keep reading, stop. Now listen to this. Because in a way, James is kind of culminating everything he's written so far. And he says, oh, now listen, listen, don't miss this. And he says, you rich people. Now, I know what a lot of us are thinking, oh, good, that's not me. I'm not rich. I'm not wealthy. I'm one of the 99%. Oh. But really, the challenge is, I think James is really speaking to you and me. Because if we have uh, safe housing, if we have decent health care, if we have enough food to eat, if we have reliable transportation, we're like the one half of one percent of all human history. But you see, we often don't view ourselves that way, do we? We often view us as the have-nots. And so often then we throw stones at the haves. And I think the one percent movement's been great. It's called out. It's helped us to understand things. But the other side of it is it's caused many of us to say, so I'm a have-not. And the truth is, we are so wicked, stinking blessed by what Christ has done for us. And we live in, in, in the wealthiest context of human history. And I think one thing that generations from now are going to look back, you know how sometimes we look back generations and we're like, how did they miss that? Slavery? I mean, buying and selling human beings, how did they miss that? I think one of the things... Subsequent generations of the church are going to look back and say, how'd they miss it? They had so many resources, and they all just lived one half step below the culture, and they were really acculturated Christ followers. And you see, here's why this is a challenge, because if we live with greed, first of all, it shapes our hearts, right? Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be. Whatever we treasure... That'll shape our hearts. So we have to ask ourselves, do I treasure more stuff? Not the way the culture views it, but how I think Jesus would view stuff. Do I treasure stuff more than I treasure Jesus? And that Jesus sacrificed his life to bring me who was marginalized, who was impoverished, who was broken, who's depraved on the side of the road. And he didn't just pass by. He noticed, and he sacrificed himself for us. Are we Christians in name, or are we Christ followers where we don't pick and choose, ah, that's the part of Christ-likeness I want to follow, but that part about sacrifice, I, I don't know. The second reason why greed can so warp us is because in verses 2 and 3, we see that our stuff will be gone. Stuff will rot. How many of us have ever gone to our refrigerator and in the back of the fridge we notice, oh, right, and it's rotten? It happens quickly, doesn't it? The stuff of this world, just when we think it's doing fine, it'll be gone sooner than we think. 
where moths chew things up. Um, so in my previous life on, on the West Coast, I taught at a theological seminary. And I'll never forget that there was a day I was um, starting a class in hermeneutics, biblical interpretation, and I wore a sweater. It must have been early season, put it on the first time. Uh, I led a class, and then afterwards, a couple of, of the students said, Greg, because I loved it when they called me Greg, said, Greg, uh, what's with the holes in the sweater? Was that like, like one of your creative like, things? I'm like, oh. so I looked in, in the mirror, and there's all these chew holes in it. I mean, they, they were dying laughing, and I didn't even know. Why? Because stuff that we treasure will be chewed away and it'll be gone before we know it. We can go on and on. Things also corrode in verse 3. You know, think about how much we live based on our economy. What if our economy corroded? Where would we be? How much do we put our trust in stuff compared to treasuring Jesus? The other challenge with greed is that greed is so stealth, right? See, if I commit adultery, I know that I've committed adultery, right? When I steal something, I know that I've stolen something, right? If I commit murder, I know that I've killed someone. When I'm greedy, I usually don't know it. We're blind to it. I've been a pastor for 32 years. I've had people come to me for everything imaginable. No one has ever come to me yet and sat down and said, Greg, I, I'm really struggling. I'm greedy. No one. The reason is it's stealth. We don't think it's us. And so we have to intentionally kind of stand back, almost go to the balcony of God's perspective and kind of review our life. How am I investing this one and only life that God has given to me? How am I stewarding the resources that God has given to me? How am I stewarding the gifts and abilities that God has entrusted to me and look through a kingdom lens at those things? I struggle with this. I'm, I'm a fellow sojourner. This is a challenging passage for me to read, let alone to preach. So someday when we stand before God, will we lament that we chased after instant gratification? Even instant gratification that's acceptable in the Christian community that's still tainted by health and wealth gospel? Or will we live counter-cultural, even sometimes counter Christian culture, and will we instead recognize the eternal joy of eternal reward that we've laid up in heaven through every act of obedience when it was difficult and there was something to lose, every time we made a choice to follow Christ, even when it didn't seem to work in the moment, every time we made a sacrifice of our time, every time we sacrificially either began to tithe, which by the way, the tithe belongs to God. So if we don't tithe, we're, that's like taking money out of the plate. Did you know that? And be, living generously with our lives because that will shape our hearts, either more Christ-like or it's like a gateway because whatever's most difficult in any culture and we yield to, then that becomes like a gateway to other idols in our culture. And materialism, I think, is really the most challenging stealth sin in our culture and once we open our hearts up, we're opening our hearts up to kind of a gateway of all kinds of other idolatry in our culture. But this is really a challenge to live out in our culture, isn't it? I wrestle with it. So move down to verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your field, they're crying out against you. 
The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. See, if we're acculturated materialistically, which most of us don't even know that we are, if we're acculturated materialistically, then that just expands poverty and injustice and suffering amidst the children God loves. Think about this. James says, look, how often in Scripture is there like a timeout? Like, look, look and see. And I think what James was writing to the people of his own generation, striving to live out their faith in the empire filled with injustice and inequity, he says, look, stop, look, notice what you're not seeing. Look with God's lens at what you're missing. And today, this might be like migrants who pick our fruit or children in the world who weave our rugs or women in sweatshops who sew our textiles or people who work in factories for our electronics or women who are trafficked or people who are mass incarcerated or people who have a lot but they're just as broken as the people on this list because they're covering it up but deep inside they're broken, they're wounded, they're hurting. And so it's through stuff or success that they're trying to somehow be validated. And what James is writing and God's Holy Spirit is speaking to us is, slow down and look. Look and see the needs, the brokenness of the people we share life with. It might be on our dorm floor or in our neighborhood or in a class or on our sports team or uh, the people we do music with. Look and see and notice what's happening. You know, in Scripture, we read fatherless and orphan, which is really just a way in, in those generations to say those who are marginalized and had no hope. We read the word father and orphan 42 times. We read widows. And remember, this was before 401Ks or, or IRAs or any kind of social uh, service nets, all right? Widows without uh, a son in the culture who was helping to finance mom or grandma in, in her old age were completely helpless. We read widows 135 times. We read foreigner, and anytime we see the word foreigner in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, put the word immigrant. Because a foreigner was just someone who fled into Israel, either for better opportunity or because of oppression. So we read the word foreigner or immigrant 214 times throughout Scripture. These are the most vulnerable. And God's saying, do we have eyes to see and to take whatever action God might be calling us to? So here's really the challenge. What's our definition? And we see these words in James verses, or 5, verses 4 and, and 5. What's our definition of luxury? Our culture would love to define that for us because what our culture needs for the economy to keep expanding is for us to buy a bunch of stuff we really don't need with money we really don't have. Isn't that right? And we can get so caught up in that, and it can be so damaging for us. So what's our definition of luxury? Is it a cultural perspective or a kingdom perspective? But now here's where this passage becomes Christocentric, because I think the gospel is embedded. The blood of Christ is spackled on every page of Scripture. Look at verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one, who was not opposing you. 
Here's a fascinating transition. It goes from plural. Look at these multitudes around you or in different places of the world. Look at them. Notice how broken or marginalized or enslaved or spiritually confused they are just like you were when Jesus came and rescued us when we were marginalized and broken and enslaved. But now it comes to the singular. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one. There's two things here. First of all, it's moving us from statistics to individuals. I think it's easy for us. We just have access to so much information constantly, right? Our news feed or or the web, whatever it, it is. And we see a world so filled with needs that we just we become incapacitated. We say, I, I can't make any difference. And God says, you know, you're probably right. You alone couldn't, but you know what? You can make a difference in one person's life or with that one issue that I'm moving your heart toward. Let's not become immobilized because of the overwhelming needs of the world, but instead to ask God, what, what's one step you're calling me to take? But the other thing is, who's the only innocent one in all of human history? who wasn't opposing us and yet was sacrificed. That's Jesus. He's bringing it in for us to recognize, wow, remember Jesus because we see Jesus in each one of those people because they're made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. And my image of God is damaged, tarnished, broken, and God's Spirit is spending my lifetime restoring that more Christ-like, right? And so when we see other people, do we see the image of God? These are God's beloved children, maybe not spiritual children, but these are people that God has given life to and that God's parental heart is broken over them. See, the one thing is for me, when I'm in anguish about something in the world, I can choose if I want to tune it out and I can go to sleep at night. God never sleeps, never slumbers. 24-7, 365, God is in anguish for the people who are hurting spiritually, relationally, because of abuse, because they don't have clean drinking water, because 22,000 children every day still die of treatable diseases. And so Jesus made this journey, this mission trip, leaving behind the glory, the honor, the privilege of heaven. See, if anyone had wealth and privilege... It's Jesus. We read a lot about privilege in our culture. We shouldn't be ashamed of privilege, okay? Instead, we should say, how have we acquired or how will we acquire privilege? Will we do it with the ethics of the kingdom? And how will we steward any privilege or wealth that God allows us to acquire? Hmm? Because Jesus had all the wealth and privilege of heaven and earth And Jesus stewarded it. He laid it down and stewarded it in order for we who are marginalized, who are broken, who are depraved, who are enslaved, who are impoverished. And He saw us and He rescued us on the cross. But this requires patience because as soon as I begin to say, okay, this means delayed gratification. This means I might obey Jesus even if it doesn't work now, right? This means I may be sacrificial even though I might not see rewards now. And that requires patience 
And so James anticipated this. And look at verse 7 and 8 as we begin to wrap it up together. He says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. So you too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Here's a portrait from, from farming. A, a tremendous amount of the recipients of this letter were lived in an agrarian culture. They understood farmer. And does a farmer plant soybeans in the morning and go have lunch, come out in the afternoon and say, hey, hey what's going on here, man? Where, where's, where are the soybeans? Of course not. By faith, trusting the track record of soybeans, the farmer plants soybeans and then knows there's stuff going on beneath the surface that I'm not going to see for a while, but I know there's going to be a harvest. So we trust the record and the character of our God, and we're planting seeds. We're planting seeds through our financial stewardship where we may make sacrifices that we don't get anything back now, tangibly, financially. When we sacrifice and we obey, and there's a cost to that obedience, we're sowing a seed where there's going to be a harvest. And some of that harvest may come in this life. Oh, I pray for that, right? But a lot of that harvest is going to come on the other side, where Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me, let me show you what no economic downturn could ever take away. And you know what I think our greatest glory in heaven is going to be? It's not, I used to, you know, when I first came to know Christ, like, man, it's going to be you know, streets of gold and palaces, and I'm going to be like, and I was narcissistic about it. Here's what I really think, and there are going to be streets of gold, but here's what I really think is going to be the greatest reward in heaven. We're going to show up, and there's going to be someone who's going to approach us, and they're going to say, glory to God, not us, but glory to God, you don't know me. But we had a well in our community that gave clean drinking water, and that saved my life. Thank you for being generous. There's going to be someone else um, who's going to be somewhere in the world, and, and they're going to say, you know, you, you don't know me, but there was someone at Mercy House who you invested in their life, especially when they were younger, and they moved to our area, and how you had invested in them, they then were equipped, and they helped to reach me, my life was transformed. Isn't that awesome? See, that, that's what I'm living for. I don't care about the palaces and stuff. Hey, if this is a fallen world, imagine the perfection. I don't, I don't worry about the accommodations. I'm looking forward to seeing the impact in people's lives for all of eternity. What will we do with the one and only life that God has given to us? Let me also say this. Every time we feel the sacrifice, I think it's good. Because when we feel the sacrifice, it just reminds us, it points us to, it, it engages us with the sacrifice of Jesus. It's kind of like fasting. Now, i got to be honest with you, I hate fasting. For me, it's slowing. It like just goes all day long, okay? And I'm grumpy, and Carolyn's like, oh, you're fasting tomorrow? And I, I can't find her, okay? It's, it, it's not pretty. But the reason for it is then when I feel that and I'm grumpy, I'm like, oh, Jesus, you weren't grumpy. You didn't fight back. You, this is just nothing compared to what you did for me when I was marginalized, when I was broken, when I was enslaved. And on the cross, you scooped me up and you redeemed my life. Amen? And so every time we make sacrifices, 
it just leans us in to, to understand the sacrifice of Christ. Let me just give you a couple of, of examples. And if I lose my reward for this, then that's great. This is my phone. It's an iPhone 5. Now, some of you don't, don't even know that there was once an iPhone 5, okay? Right? You'll see it in museums someday. It was our daughter's. She gave it to me. This is my first smartphone. I've had it. She was in Rwanda when she gave it to me, so it was like four years ago. And uh, it works pretty well, okay? It does what I need. And I don't know how many people say, Greg, why don't you get a new phone? And I'm like, because this one works. It works fine, fine for me. Why do I want to pay $1,000 for something that this one works fine? This is my laptop, okay? My son calls it the brick, okay? And uh, it's nine years old, and it works fine. It, it's a little slow, and we have kind of a relationship, okay? But, um, and so people, literally, people have said to me, Greg, you're like the pastor of a church of like 800 people. Why don't you get into... I'm like, so that gives me some kind of privilege to go buy something? I'm like, now, now, now everyone's different. You might need a state-of-the-art technology. Do it, right? We're all different. This isn't a diatribe against phones or laptops. One other you know, example, years ago, we cut cable. And that was back before Netflix, okay? And we cut cable, and we did it because we knew we were just, we would watch too much television. And when I saw the bill, I'm like, man, stand before God someday? Oh, man, Greg, tell me about all those channels, man. That must have been awesome. And so here, here's where we felt it. Every time, and this was before they streamed the Super Bowl, every time the Super Bowl came up, Jim would kind of look like, nah, 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 Dad, okay. And I'd say, okay, listen, but this is what this is about. Jim, think about the children we sponsor. Think about what the church is able to do. Think about the things we do missions. And then we would always like, hey, are you watching the Super Bowl? Hey, where are you going to watch it? Hey, we got to watch it together. Yeah, how about your house, right? <laughs> it's like, uh, so this isn't a diatribe against technology or channels or whatever like that. This is what this is about. We need to stand back, slow down, and survey our lives. Just say, God, how's my stewardship? And look over it and review it. How's the stewardship of my time? How's the stewardship of my heart? How's the stewardship of my finances? How's the stewardship of my relations? And, and really ask ourselves the hard questions there. Here's the difference that this can make, wrapping it up. Moving from standard of living to standard of giving. There was a guy in my hometown. I grew up just outside Seattle. And there was a guy named Ralph, and Ralph, um, I went to high school with his grandchildren. Ralph started a story called it Ralph's Thriftway. And um, as time passed, Ralph's Thriftway became uh, like a large leading grocery store in our community. Uh, we always shopped there. Uh, and then he opened a second store down on the waterfront. And as time passed, uh, Ralph began to make more and more money. And he reached a place to where he said, we we have a nice moderate house, we drive decent cars, we've done some things to help for our children, grandchildren, education. And he said, that's it right there. And so he began to have his standard of giving grow and grow and grow. What none of us knew then was, by the time I was in high school, he was actually reverse tithing. He was giving away about 90%. And he was burdened at First Baptist Church in our, in our community that there were not as many 
young adults engaged in the church. So he came to the church, his, his church, and behind the scenes, no one knew this then, he said, I will fund five years of a youth pastor. And we'll start 100% and then go like 90, 80, you know, and then do that. Hired a youth pastor. That youth pastor reached out. I grew up in a home that um, did not know about Jesus. And that youth pastor reached out to my brother through some of his friends. My brother began to share with me. I met with that youth pastor for the first time, understood the gospel, went home that night, laid in bed. I'm in this scene right now. I can experience it now. And I basically said, Jesus, I don't... I was like, Jesus, you know, I used to struggle stuttering. Jesus, as long as I never have to speak in front of people, I'll give my... Isn't it neat how God uses our weaknesses? And I just said, I don't know what this is, but Jesus, I need you. And that began a journey that changed my life. See, I'm part of Ralph's coaching tree. Because Ralph said, you know what? Instead of standard of living, this is fine. And I want to be generous to see the kingdom transformed. To kind of bring this home, home to us, a, a little clip from Schindler's List, a difficult movie to watch. Oscar Schindler was um, a German industrialist during the Nazi regime, and he was burdened for the Jewish people. And so he began to purchase slaves to work in his factories, but they weren't slaves. He was really saving their lives. They worked uh, as workers for him, and he protected them. And then he purchased other uh, Jewish people uh, in order for them to be able to escape uh, Nazi Germany. At the end of the film, uh, you know, the war has ended, and, and many of the workers of his factory, these, these Jewish people whose lives he saved, come out. And you expect it to be this huge celebration, and this is the scene that happens.
So Oscar Schindler recognizes, I could, have, I could have done more. I could have saved more lives. Look at this car. That would have been worth 10, 10 people. Gold pin, one, maybe two. I pray that when we come to the end of our lives, that we'll be able to stand upright before God because of what Jesus has done and poured out His grace that has atoned for our sins and redeemed our lives, and that in response to the radical, sacrificial generosity of Jesus, that we won't have just been Christians in name, but we'll be Christ followers who follow in that sacrificial footsteps, and that we won't have, we won't have shame before God, but instead we will have done all that God has called us to make a difference in a world that so desperately needs God's shalom, God's salvation, God's transformation in Christ. And this leads us into communion or the Eucharist because what we're talking about is not me attempting to guilt you or behavior modification because that'll last until about Thursday and it'll be gone. We're talking about drill down deep, Jesus through the Holy Spirit transforming us from the inside out and changing the affections of our heart. But we often have to train our hearts by where we put our treasure. And so Jesus gathered with His closest friends. He was en route to the ultimate sacrifice of the cross. And it was the Passover meal. And Jesus took the bread, the, the Passover bread, that pointed to the body of, of the Lamb who was slain. And that blood was put over the doorposts of the people's home. And so the body and the blood of Jesus sacrificed is over the doorposts of our lives. When we come to know Jesus, we choose to repent of our sins. We choose to say, yes, Jesus, I, I will follow you. Somehow, cosmically, our sin, our filth, our guilt is nailed to the cross. And we become God's beloved, forgiven, called children. So Jesus took the bread, He blessed it, and He broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup. It was the cup that signified the blood of the Passover lamb. And Jesus is the Passover lamb. And He said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. At Mercy House, uh, people come forward to, to take communion, to receive the elements, and then go back to our seats. And, and we may be wrestling, we may be repenting, we may be celebrating, but just allowing God to speak into our hearts and to reflect on the sacrifice of Christ that can transform us deep from within. If you're a Christ follower, you are invited. This is Christ's table. If you're a Christ follower... You're invited to this table. If, if you're still wrestling with who Jesus is, I just want to encourage you to, to take this, this time to pray, to reflect, to, and maybe this will be the time when you say, Jesus, yes. Thank you that you saw me on the side of the road, marginalized, broken, wounded, depraved, and through the cross, you've brought me back home to your heart. Father, we give you thanks for these elements that are signs that point to the body and the blood of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, we're so grateful that you left behind the glory, the honor, the privilege of heaven, that you stewarded all the wealth and all the glory and all the honor and all the privilege 
and you laid it all on the altar as you laid your life on the altar of the cross to be sacrificed to bring us back home to your heavenly Father and to the family of faith. God, through this Eucharist, through this communion, speak to us, shape us, drill down deep and transform us. We pray for nothing less. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.